Hi, welcome back. Did you get your oat milk cold brew? Chamomile iced tea? How about an extra large smiley face cookie? All set? All right then, let's get started. Welcome to Inspired Word Cafe. I'm your host, Shimshon Abadia, they, them, and with me today is Emmett McMillan, he, they. And this is your monthly podcast of poetry, prose, and all the delightful goodness of the written word. Here we shine our coffeehouse spotlight on writers whose work resonates with us and does some good in being read. These are the words that inspire us. And if you just can't get enough IWC, feel free to go back in your podcast app and listen to all of our past guests and the inspiring words every single one of them has brought to the cafe. Like today's very special guest, who we're thrilled to have joining us directly from the Treaty 13 territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples in Toronto, Ontario. It's Ariel Twist, she, her. Ariel Twist is a Nehea Two-Spirit author and multidisciplinary artist originally from George Gordon First Nation, Saskatchewan. Now based out of Toronto, Ontario, her debut collection, Disintegrate Slash Dissociate, has won the Indigenous Voices Award for Published Poetry and won the 2020 Dane Ogilvy Prize for Emerging LGBTQ Authors. Her work has been exhibited at the Art Gallery of Mississauga, Art Gallery of Nova Scotia, and the Agnes Thierington Art Gallery. In 2019, she was awarded the Indigenous Artist Recognition Award from Arts NS for her body of work. She is currently an MFA candidate at OCAD University. Today, for our very last episode of the season, Ariel will be reading both new work and poetry from her acclaimed debut poetry collection, which you can pick up now from booksellers everywhere. Though we're pretty partial to you getting it from your local independent bookstore. And links to learn more about Ariel's work can be found down in your show notes, along with all the links from this episode. Now, Ariel Twist, welcome to the Inspired Word Cafe podcast. Oh my God, thanks for having me. It's so nice to be here. <laughs> uh, it is honestly such a thrill and a pleasure. Um, I think we were talking just before we started recording about uh, one of your pieces that had that you're actually going to read today, which I'm very excited about, uh, that uh, was in a very amazing special issue of ARC Magazine. And that was actually how I got introduced to your work. Uh, and that was Polymorphous Preverse. And that was a, a wonderful special issue of trans and gender diverse voices. And when I got that in the mail, it just kind of blew me away. And uh, after we sort of started putting together this season for this year, because I was introduced to your work there, I kind of had to have you on the podcast. And I'm so, so thrilled that you agreed to join us uh, and, of course, to read that piece, uh, along with some others that we're very excited to hear in a little bit. Yeah, thank you so much. It was um, it was so great to be in that issue. It was so beautiful. It was like, a, yeah, it was really nice. Well, let's get into these uh, wonderful pieces and uh, some stuff from your book, uh, as well as brand new poems that I think have only grace the pages of the internet so far so we're very excited to to get to see and hear all of that new stuff yeah i can start now i'm gonna start with uh some poems from my debut poetry collection disintegrate dissociate um and 
I'm going to start with uh, the prelude, prelude, however it's pronounced. I never really figured it out. <laughs> I'm just figuring it out as I go. <laughs> um, prelude. The night our cookum died, my mother cried out in another language. I hear her break the cracking of burning wood like it was my own bones between walls of mud and dust, the structure on fire. I begin to come undone by the sound, a rupture, wailing ears landing on purple tiles. My ears know everything in this house. I beg my eyes to stop making an ocean. Water and salt fill the crater next to me as if this bed knows nothing but loss. I weep into the space left unbodied. I think I'll leave mine too. Disintegrate or dissociate, I will deconstruct myself and rebuild in her vision. I'm the boundless space between oceans of water and wheat. One. Kokum, can I tell you that this land feels like a dream, something untouched by my skin, though she birthed me beneath her fields, flowers, and grass? These memories feel like they're pulled from a past I absorbed through my leaves, a sort of photograph derived through photosynthesis, where you are the sun, the water, the air. Kokum, can I say I can't recognize her face, but maybe my body can recall how her curves rocked me to sleep? That I dreamt of myself wearing a yellow gown, dancing through her canola. That I can see her ghost on Gordon's waving goodbye the first time, the last time. Cookum, did I ever tell you the two places I slept best were next to you and next to her? Two. Nana, can I call you Migaju? Can I speak Mi'kmaq? Because even with this twisted Cree tongue, I sang a song when you passed. I don't know the words. But the beat is a memory your son taught me to sing, so I will sing. I will sing to the birch trees, watch their skin peel in January, feel my skin sliding, waiting for it to fall off too. I will sing to the brook, vocalized stories shared of a childhood jumping into her, a childhood wishing I knew more. Migaju, as I speak Mi'kmaq and cry and Cree, can you forgive me? Manifest for Billy, which is actually a poem, one of like the first poems I wrote in this collection that I wrote in Banff after I met Billy Ray Belcourt, which is like, this was the moment. (laughs) I think I want us to be forever because the cultivation of this craft has asked us to bear children we did not want, to crack open our chest for audience, gazing into the veins of each other's world, wondering how this ecology survives. I like to think it lives in swamps, the bogs I grew up on, the wetlands that keep my lungs dripping in melodrama, how sometimes when I feel emotions, I can't tell if I'm drowning or if I'm too full of a divisive or maybe indecisive way of being, that if this body is up for grabs, under scrutiny, fill it with flowers, gold, and pearls, so maybe for once it will be seen as pretty, and if we must survive, which means we must write, I'll weave you into a poem this art of quilting words, I think that's the closest thing I will ever feel to love. Constellations. I haven't felt lovely since I felt your lips pressed against my body, unconquered territory, this thing called no man's land, lined with a galaxy of nerves, constellations discovered, traced with tongues on the paper of my skin, sounds of sunbursts mimicking moans of each other, Your voice echoing through dimensions. Oh, and did I mention I loved you here? 
And I'll never forget the way your orgasms remind me of comets shooting across the starry skies of my chest. How you looked at me while moons collided like our bodies, unruly, destructive, creating new worlds in the fire of old ones. And this is the newer poems, this section, this little tidbit. At 19, I was a girl at 19, undone. The glow of the dashboard is the only light we need to do what we came here to do. Maybe Snapchat meant more to me. I'm a romantic, even in the passenger side, skirt up with a hand on my ass, my head in your lap. Even almost a decade later, I'm easily persuaded by just the thought of you and that car. The thought that maybe I've changed. Maybe now is the right time. I have changed. This art is consuming. Gluttony for words strung up to make something so tragic, beautiful. But the story of us is the same as it was at 19. A minor tragedy, still finding beauty in late night Discord calls and Tinder matches. And all this time I thought I'd sprouted myself into someone worthy, but here I am again at like at 19, just a girl begging to be a girl to someone who made these words feel true to begin with. Forever in a loop of cat and mouse with a boy I watched grow into a man as he watched as I grew into a monster right before his eyes. And these last two are untitled, so they're just gonna be read pause red there's no way for this to be campy my queerness is rooted in dark humor and jokes that make my friends squeal in their jeeps and ask them to attend a recital of dancing around fucked up shit a performance us fags and tranny know all too well well i can't make this sound like a joke so for once me and billy ray will weep in a public place instead of making the void in our own throats a punchline and scream into each other's mouths as it's the only way we know how to acknowledge that each of us is yearning for love which may or may not come or maybe this time it'll be different maybe this man loves me and i assure you he did he did love me but that's what hurts the most about him being taken away by whatever we want to name it in this moment and everything happens for a reason right and we couldn't think of one in that restaurant so we wept And I still can't find a reason to this day why this happened to me, to us, to him. But Billy Ray listens to me tell this story again. Because the jokes haven't come yet, but they will. And we will sing country songs in that green Jeep and scream into the voids that exist in parallel with the cracks in the windshield. A prairie homage to the reses which raised us to be this way. And I'll feel whole again with a belly full of laughter after he screams about the moment my boyfriend went mad. And campy is what they will call it. I want to be soft, I said with a breath of hope. I want to be actualized in this thing we call life. I want to be whole before I die again. I want to love a love which wants to love me. I wanted nothing more than him and the taste of his skin. With more came less, gluttony got the best of me, and I was left alone in a world which could not love me back. No care for the shaper of words creator of unspeakable things. Maybe I am destined for life as the mother of empty wombs and beds where even hope could not rest. I wanted to become creator and creation, to feel the restless hands of another along my thighs begging for me to make them again and again. Still, I never had a choice in what I would become or who would touch my skin. These men love monstrosities like me. 
an unconscious desire ending in rage and death, blood pooling in our mouths like rose petals replacing teeth. That's love for girls like me. But please try and prove me wrong. Thank you so much, Ariel, for sharing those beautiful, beautiful words and for bearing so much of yourself out there in your poems in general. It's meant a lot to me as as a reader of your work, and uh, I think it means a lot to probably a lot of our listeners getting to hear that and uh, getting to explore this territory with you. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me to read. I haven't read in so long, so I feel like I'm like a little uh, rusty. <laughs> oh, well, you couldn't tell. Uh, so... My first question for you here is just around the idea of body, which comes up a lot in your work and is something I found myself very drawn to. Uh, And I think a lot of trans and gender diverse folk reading other trans and gender diverse folks writing, really, we tend to gravitate towards this idea of understanding our bodies because for a large part it does feel sort of like um, a kind of creation that we have to go through uh, a a metamorphosis uh, of sorts to, to use the kind of cheesy phrasing there you focus on these great visuals in your poems you describe things like skin falling off and we have these kinds of visceral explorations that go on as we go through leading up to these ideas of even being considered monstrous and then being able to reclaim that where you have lines like these men look uh, these men love monstrosities like me and feeling like a monster and then you find beauty in that and reclamation and turn it around in such a way that doesn't necessarily uh, leave us with any clean answers, but I feel almost opens more doors and more possibilities. I was wondering if you could just start us off by kind of telling us how you explore that in your work and describing what that means for you, this idea of body and reclamation of ideas of body as they are constructed. Yeah, I feel like um, even before I wanted to be a writer, I like I transitioned like right before the trans tipping point. So like in 2013, when the world was uh, especially vicious um, in like the, 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 the era of dating apps and um, everything being on the internet, but no one having like an understanding of transness in this like way. And it was like really just like outwardly violent. And I'm not saying it's not now, but it was like definitely a different world. Um, And so I've just like been processing that, processing what it meant to like transition when I did and processing the like this very heavy weight of what womanhood looked like and needed to look like and um what I needed to look and be and act and sound 
like to be a woman in society. And I felt so like trapped and rigid because I felt like I like that also wasn't who I was. It was like a, like I I, I feel like I identify more with it now that I've settled into it for so long, like this hyper femininity. Um, but I think when I think of my gender and my body, I don't think of it in like a in like a way that I think can be explained in like English in like like a in the colonial gendered way. Um, but outwardly and like how I present myself is definitely like through womanhood and through like that. So just thinking through like how trans women are treated as monsters and I think we've been talking about like trans women have been talking about this since trans women have been like since the dawn of time probably and uh I think a lot about like Susan Stryker's work in the 90s um talking about like monstrosity and reclaiming it and like trans rage and um and also Jack Halberstam's work when he talks about like trans and architecture I think is what it's called um and um this like talk the way that we talk about trans people talk about their bodies is the same way that people talk about like construction and house building and like like uh, about like remodeling and like breaking things down and remaking and like this whole process of like becoming something new and um I think about that a lot and like Frankenstein and monsters and history and about how like Eve Tuck describes monsters as um, those who have been wronged and seek justice. And so I've like really resonated with that. Like I was like, if I'm existing in the world that is not going to accept me, I'm going to accept the role as a monster. If that means that I'm just one who is seeking justice. Um. So yeah, that's like why I talk about monstrosity a lot in my writing and feeling like a monster. My mom hates it, but I get it. She's like, don't call yourself that. But I'm just like, no, it's like a, it's like taking the power back. It's like, it's like, I decided that I'm not like you and that's okay. Well, and there is such a power felt in that, in these poems in particular, the way that you take that idea of monster and use rage to reclaim and channel that. It's almost cathartic to get to see that because I'm just speaking from my own experience, but it sounds like you and I think many of the friends I have in in our community who have expressed this idea of feeling like a monster and being afraid to claim that. And then when it does get reclaimed and it's done with uh, a rage and an anger and a power Mm -hmm. that is almost, I want to say, justified, but also righteous and allows you to really jump that boundary, there is something very moving. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about when you're writing these poems and you're exploring these ideas of identity and perception and rejection of certain norms, how you go about doing that in a way that honestly feels like it really rejects the 
kind of urge to appeal to a cis heteronormative audience and instead seems to speak directly to a queer and trans audience and um, be able to address issues of a variety of aspects of your own identity, talking about how your identity intersects as a trans person, but also as an indigenous person, as a person just trying to navigate the world. And you put these all in these poems so concisely and so clearly using that fuel, that fire that really ignites something, I think, in the reader who has experienced something similar to what you're describing and can also feel that. And so I'm wondering how you're able to bring that into poetry and what your process is for translating such large and big ideas and emotions into such well-polished and very directly impactful poems. Um, so I was never formally trained in writing, which is like, I think one of the biggest things I, uh, one of um, my advisors in my thesis described this process that happens with writers where people learn how to be professional writers. They learn, they go to school, they um, learn like the very specific and rigid ways that you learn how to be a writer. There's rules that you have to follow. And then when they actually leave school, they try and break out of those rules and like be like uh, experiment and kind of like uh, reject kind of like these like very, like very rigid structures that have been in place, especially within academia, I think. And I um, I started writing with no rules. I like, I just like, I was writing for me. I was writing in like this very like, honestly visceral and emotional way like I was just like writing my feelings and I didn't I wasn't thinking about structure and I wasn't thinking about like grammar and I wasn't thinking about all these um these things that I like know are important but also like whatever and I um I think that my methodologies for writing are very like pretty meditative actually now that like I've like learned what methodologies are <laughs> through grad school uh, like I uh I take a lot of time with myself and I think about the things that I'm writing and usually it's it's in like uh I'm like in a heightened emotional state like feeling these things like and I just need to like get them out and I used to think that wasn't a methodology but it kind of is it's like a it's just like personal it's like very personal it's very emotional and it's also kind of like why I don't share as much as my poetry anymore because it's like I I was already very vulnerable in my first book very young and I didn't realize how much pressure comes with that and um how many people would read it <laughs> like so I just feel like um since it feels since it is very personal and feels very personal I kind of want to pick and choose what I share now um and these hard things are hard but they're not the hardest you know like I think 
when people think about indigenous literature or trans literature, it's like a lot of like trauma-based work, but it's actually not. Like the things that we're talking about are like real life things. And then the real traumas we're like keeping for ourselves, like the things that are like very, very hard um, and that are like hard for us to like work through and process are the things that we keep to ourselves. And then the things that are easier to process because we faced so much, we are able to show those things because we process them and we've like dealt with them. Uh, or some of us have, I don't think everyone has, because it is, it's work. Um, but I do think that um, trans and indigenous writers, or like just like artists or people in general, you, you have to go through so much and give up so much to exist. And those hard things are not hard for us. <laughs> they get easy pretty quickly. You learn how to like live and navigate. Um, so I, I really believe that like, it's just like a, a body thing. Like I just like, no, it feels very instinctual. And it comes off so effortlessly, I feel, because of that following of your instincts. Um, and of course, in this case, by following your instincts, I mean, you follow your instincts and then put together something that is so well put together and uh, able to really tap into these deeper things. So I wish my instincts were that well honed. But your ability to do that really, I think, speaks volumes in terms of your work as a whole, but also to uh, folks like myself reading this. And there is this idea of meditation that is probably the the perfect uh, description of, of your methodology here. Uh, so, so I'm so happy to hear you kind of latch on to that because they did feel these these do feel like meditations but not in the passive sense that I think um, is often associated with meditative poetry and when we're talking about something that's almost um, say like pastoral and uh, really just taking these things in you do that but in an active way almost as an act of defiance at some points where there's a sort of refusal to accept things as they are and there is a pushback and some of that I feel like comes back to that that rage and anger that you were describing earlier that is so well honed in there but there's also a refusal to accept the narratives that have been imposed on you and a push that is so strong that you end up being able to change that narrative. You have lines like, I want to be whole before I die again. And that is one of those lines that got me thinking about these ideas. We're talking about construction, construction of identity, of personhood, but also of pushing against those ideas of predetermined standards and getting to discover wholeness through making your own roadmap. And I was hoping you might be able to talk a little more about if you, if you could describe a little bit about how it is that you forge that roadmap or draw that roadmap in your poems 
for yourself personally, but what it's like to use that pushback and refusal as an approach to doing that in still this very meditative, uh, contemplative kind of way that opens up these deeper thoughts in your pieces. Yeah, I think <clears throat> that refusal is just like inherently there. I feel like uh, what I think when I think back of, of like when I transitioned and then what my life was like in like the like late 2010s, like 2017, 2016 area, I think a lot about how angry I was that the world wasn't um, fair or safe or caring of me or the people like me. Um, and not just as like an indigenous trans woman, but as like a indigenous woman and a trans woman separately, like, like both of those things are like, um, have a lot of violence attached to them. So I, I was just really angry and processing that. And then I feel like finding queer community is when I realized that I didn't have to be so angry that like there was like, and I was still angry. We all were. It was like a very, it was like a moment driven by identity politics too. <laughs> so it was like very intense and a lot of like lateral violence within every community. Um, and I just wanted to be soft. I just didn't want to be angry anymore, which is also like why I'm leaning into so much like bimbo ideology right now, because it's just like, I am tired and I just want to like, um, live and like be a silly girl sometimes like I <laughs> I don't want to have to like think critically about my own existence every single day all the time um and I'm feeling like that softness is coming through like giving up a, a lot of fight which feels kind of like wrong in a lot of ways like I feel like I'm like almost giving up on something that I've fought really hard for but I think I've learned in this kind of like refusal that I've been pushing so hard is that I just need to like live life for me and that refusal is there but it doesn't need to be um said it's just there it just exists I like don't think about it when I write I don't I don't think about the ways in which I'm being political anymore. I'm just like saying the things that I like need to say to like feel and live life that I want to live. Um, and if those things like are resonating or they feel angry, I, I don't feel angry anymore, you know? And I feel like it's more of a place of like me processing, me sitting with it, me coming to terms with things almost that I won't ever be normal, but also that's okay. And I think that's, that's the biggest shift for me in the past couple of years. Oh yeah. Well, fuck normal. There's something so liberating and radical about that approach of shifting value to yourself and sharing that, showing that, there is a value that can be put on yourself. I feel like 
for those of us from uh, any kind of non-mainstream, marginalized communities, anyone who has experienced what you talk a lot about, frankly, in your poems and, and talk about really well, being able to put value on yourself is not really celebrated all that often. And to see that, to hear you facing that and putting that value on and doing it through uh, like with bimbification is like, <laughs> yes, that is like, yes, sometimes you do just want to be a silly girl and be able to enjoy that and be able to have enough solidity underneath yourself to know that you're allowed to have that. And I get the sense that this is something that runs throughout a lot of your work as something that was almost building to this like a crescendo to come to this point of being able to do that, um, especially when it comes to uh, some of the pieces even that you started with, which I know were much earlier in uh, or earlier than some of the other pieces that you read for us today. And yet there is still that kind of linking of building to that place of self-acceptance and just really self-value when you talk about processing loss, when you talk about processing major changes, and you're addressing some of these thoughts to your kokum and describing what it's like to now be in what's essentially a changed world, which I feel like is a very relatable thing, not just to uh, queer and marginalized folk, but also right now to just about everyone in some capacity, minus some super rich folk who can send themselves up into space, I suppose. But getting to kind of have that linkage and be able to process great and frankly sometimes traumatic change in a way that leads to this radical value of the self and in sometimes very silly and fun and humorous ways which your poems are full of just amazing humor um, is something that I really admire in your work and to kind of wrap up here, I was wondering if you might be able to talk a little bit more about where that comes from for you, where that ends up playing in your work, and what you think it's taking you to in the work you're developing now that we'll hopefully be able to see very soon. Um. I honestly don't think that's something I've done until recently, which is why I think there's such a shift in what I'm doing and like what I'm working through and what I'm writing about lately. <clears throat> I think uh, I was processing grief and loss and trauma through a very logical sense. I like could understand why these things were happening. I could understand the dynamics that are in place. I could understand like the intergenerational trauma. I could like, I like, I could pinpoint all of these things and I could process them in a very like rational way. And I was like, I get it. I don't need to work on it. 
And then at some point during the pandemic, I was like, I didn't process any of this. I like literally just like explained to myself why it was happening. Um, And now that I'm doing the work of processing it, I am like talking about it and feeling through it and stuff. Um, It's like shifted completely. I feel like a completely different person. I feel like I've let go of a lot of those things. And I think a lot of those things were actually rooted in uh, things like ego or like shame or guilt and and grieving like a lot like a lot of my first book is about grief and a lot of my like work now is still about grief but like kind of like a different way where like I'm shifting this idea of grief from just like insurmountable loss to like a uh, uh, immeasurable love and like that this grief is me being able to talk about who I was when I was at a certain point and we shift and change constantly. So that happens a lot. Um, And grieving those moments and grieving who I was and who I can be and who I could have been and all of those things. I realized that grieving those things is just a, a, a constant and immeasurable love for myself. And that, and that this grief is rooted in, I mean, loving myself and me wanting to like find that. And I don't think I realized that until recently and being able to be like, all this pain is rooted in me wanting and knowing that I deserve love and care and all of these things that I haven't been given um, from the world. I've got it from my community. We know like kinship. Uh, but, um, it shifted everything. It shifted my whole perception on grief and like how I, how I felt about everything and how everyone was dealing with stuff. And I, it made me more empathetic, I think, and also have a lot more space for like more nuanced conversations about things, I think. Yeah. That room for nuance is such a really kind of fertile ground I feel like in your work in particular but in poetry in general and writing in general for that matter or any form of storytelling communication there is something that opens up the more nuance a conversation can be the more places you can open those the more of what you just called immeasurable love which i just love and want to want to read a book called immeasurable love now just be able to sink into that feeling it's something that we don't often i feel like get to spend as much time with because it is something that lives in those smaller more nuanced places and for better for worse and let's face it, mostly for worse, we happen to be in a world that really values overly strict binaries and things that are essentially black and white and not really a place that is conducive to the variety and the spectrum of other things that exist in just 
the day-to-day in, in those little nuanced pockets you were describing. So to kind of wrap up, if you could just tell us a little bit about where you find those pockets and how in your writing and your life you manage to kind of escape that pressure to conform to these binaries and these strict, dramatic, one or the other extremes and place those nuances in words that open up such avenues as you have. I think I had to let go of my ego in like this very, very funny way where I had to admit to myself that I'm like learning and that I am changing and that I was rebirthed into a like a very different time than we're in now. And I have to unlearn a lot of these binaries that I like, um, and like the, like thinking through heteronormativity and relationships and like wanting to be normal and wanting to have a husband and wanting to have kids and all of these things that like, I actually don't know if I actually wanted or I like was forced to want when I first transitioned and like could never let go of. So I feel like I'm doing that work now, which has been devastating, honestly, because it's like, it's grieving a dream that I've had since I've transitioned um and it also opens up a door for me to be who I actually am which is like a very queer a very um silly and um playful and soft person that I like never really I was acted too tough I always was like I got this but I think um Letting that guard down has been really hard, but that change is uh, huge. And I'm excited to be choosing myself. I'm excited to be taking breaks and figuring out what I want and who I want to be and letting go of not only like societal's pres- society's pressures, but the pressures that this industry has like put on me or that the pressures that... Um, being in the public eye has been put on me in the past couple of years. I, I need to reconfigure that. And honestly, I'm so excited to figure out who I am after everyone has been like, you're so sure of yourself. This book shows that you know who you are. And I, I don't know if that has ever been true, but it's starting to feel true. I think we're all very excited right along with you for all all of the truths and just love that you are going to be exploring that you have presented with all of, uh, presented to all of us in your work and the just power in beauty and softness that you bring with your words. Thank you so much, Ariel, for joining us today. It has been an absolute pleasure getting to talk to you. And uh, just before we sign off with you here, uh, or just before we we leave you here for um, this next little bit, uh, where can folks find some of the 
work that you read today, but also where can folks find you and follow you to find your upcoming works as you continue along this beautiful trajectory you've just laid out for us. Um, you can find two of those poems were published in that arc issue that you mentioned at the beginning. The first few poems were in my uh, poetry book, Disintegrate Dissociate, which you can get from any of your local bookstores, I'm sure. And if they don't have it, you can order it. <laughs> my Instagram and my Twitter handles are Ariel Twist, just my name. And um, yeah, I post there kind of silly, trying to really in my bimbo era. Let's, let's live that bimbo life and let go of a lot of stuff for a little while. <laughs> Well, there are some really great posts there, I can say, from personal experience. And we will have links to all of that down below in our show notes, where you can follow Ariel and all of her wonderful, fun bimbofication, and also find all of the incredible work that she is putting out into the world. Thank you so much. And it has just been such such a great time. So so really, really appreciate it. Thank you. That's all for this time and Actually, that's all for this season. Thank you so, so, so very much for joining us. We've had an incredible lineup of outstanding Canadian writers in the cafe over the past two years. And we couldn't be happier or more grateful for the inspiration they've shared with us. Not to mention the overwhelming love and support all of you, our listeners, have embraced each episode of Inspired Word Cafe's podcast with. Our little podcast has kicked off a whole bunch of great things, sending Kelowna, BC's own IWC, into headphones across the country and around the world. As well as opened up a whole bunch of possibilities and avenues for Emmett and Me Too. Like how you may have noticed a familiar voice delivering some audio documentaries on CBC Radio 1 this past year. Yep, that was our very own Shimshon Abadia on the air. And I'm not the only one who's been enjoying a little success lately. Emmett here has been working tirelessly behind the scenes at IWC and is stepping into the role of managing director as we prepare for what promises to be an absolutely exhilarating season of inspiring words. But with everything exciting coming up, our time has become a little stretched. Oh, did I mention Shimshan's been working on finishing their master's degree this whole time? Yeah, talk about a busy year. So this isn't just the last episode of the season. It's actually going to be our last episode for a bit. Don't worry, though, this isn't goodbye forever. This podcast is just going on a brief hiatus while Shimshan finishes up with grad school. And Emmett helps our local literary scene flourish as our small grassroots organization continues to grow and thrive. However, let's not forget we have a huge back catalog for you to listen to while we're off having other adventures now. Then, before you know it, the Inspired Word Cafe's podcast will be back in your headphones, renewed and refreshed with something exciting we've had in the works for- Hey, no spoilers, Shimshan. Oh, all right. I guess folks can wait a little bit. All I can say for now is that you've got to trust me because you won't want to miss this. Take it away, Emmett. Let's roll these credits. You got it. 
This podcast is a production of Inspired Word Cafe Society. Our episodes are written, edited, and produced by Shimshan Obadia. Emmett McMillan composed and mixed our theme music and co-produced this episode right along with me. Our podcast logo was created by Mackenzie Ken Shaw, any pronouns, who manages our marketing. Inspired Word Cafe Society is pleased to acknowledge our podcast is created with the generous financial support of the Canada Council for the Arts, as well as funding provided in part by the City of Kelowna. We'd also like to take this moment to recognize that this is done on the unceded territory of the Sioux Okanagan people, and more importantly, that we are uninvited guests on this land. For more about the Okanagan Nation Alliance, please visit silks.org. That's S-Y-I-L-X dot org. For more about Inspired Word Cafe, including our upcoming programs and events, and this really great season coming up, please feel free to check out inspiredwordcafe.com and follow us at Inspired Word Cafe on all social media. We can't thank each and every one of our guests and listeners enough for everything this incredible journey has brought us. And we are so looking forward to continuing where we left off when this podcast comes back from hiatus oh so very, very soon. But until then, we'll just say, thanks thanks for stopping by the cafe. cafe.